So what are we doing today? Today what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about because I'm sure the burning question you all had from yesterday is, wow, all of that uh, Monist stuff sounds really interesting, but how the heck would I do it in practice? And do actual social scientists do monistic analysis? And the answer is yes, because this dude did it. Um, and this is Weber. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about Weber and ideal types. And then I want to talk a little bit about the sort of last alternative in the philosophy of science. Uh, not the last of all, but the last of the four that I want to talk about. Talk a little bit about critical theory. As, uh, and reflexive notions of knowledge um, as sort of the end. And then, like I said, I'll get almost up to the punchline. The punchline is, as you might anticipate, kind of a two-by-two, two, which divides up these different modes of thinking about science uh, and social science. And you'll see that as I upload it later. But for now, I want to start off by talking about Max Weber. And part of the reason I want to talk about Weber is because Weber is usually misunderstood as to what he actually said about the social sciences, uh, because people take this famous essay that Weber wrote in 1904, which is this essay called the object, it was usually referred to as the objectivity essay. The English translations of this essay are uniformly terrible. And they are terrible to the point of misstating the title of the essay. So, because the actual title of the essay, if you translate it literally into English, is something like, the objectivity, with academic scare quotes, the objectivity of social scientific and social political knowledge. And in English, this is usually translated as objectivity in social science and social policy. Entirely different title. Um, and some of the English translations actually omit the second section of the essay, too, so it's really, really weird. Um, so Weber gets sort of misinterpreted in a lot of ways. What Weber was doing in that 1904 essay, talking about what it would mean to have something like objective social science, or objective social science with the scare quotes on it, is he's putting an editorial statement together when he and Werner Sombart and the third guy whose name I can never remember took over the editorial ship of the Archivia. Uh, whichever social, social economy, I think it was social business, economic Wissenschaft, I think it was. But anyway, they're taking, over the editorial, they're taking over the editorial responsibilities of a journal, and they're trying to say, what kind of work will we publish in this journal? Right? So that was the context of this, the objectivity essay. And so what Weber actually suggests in that essay is that every kind of social science, every kind, operates with what he called ideal types. And an ideal type for Weber is a very specific way of thinking about the theories and concepts that we utilize in our social scientific work. So for Weber, an ideal type is not a picture-perfect representational copy of anything. An ideal type is a deliberate oversimplification. An ideal type is a way of trying to make sense of the world by abstracting from it. And the importance of that notion of abstracting from it is you are creating what he calls a utopia, but that does not mean a desirable future outcome. That means you're creating a logically purified form of whatever it is that you're looking at. So if you do an ideal typical analysis of democracy, what you would do is you would say, what are the basic characteristics of democracy? And actually existing democracies don't always look like that. Actually, existing democracies are one or another variant of the thing that you kind of intellectually draw together into this ideal type of democracy. What this means, the fact that he says this is kind of what we're operating with, is precisely that there are two things you cannot do with an ideal type. And one thing you cannot do with an ideal type is you cannot use an ideal type to judge actually existing things. Here is my ideal type of democracy, and I can therefore rule that so-and-so country is not actually a democracy. That would be a problem, because then I'd be taking my ideal type and turning it into a normative ideal. And he said, no, 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 that's not, that's not what we do here. But the other thing that we don't do here is by abstracting from different things and coming up with an ideal type of something like democracy, what we're not doing, and this is why he's not a realist in terms we were talking about yesterday, he's not coming up with an essential characteristic of democracy that is understood to be like a real underlying causal power. Instead, what you're coming up with is a particular understanding of the phenomenon which is appropriate for the research community that is developing the ideal type. Weber's quote-unquote objectivity, as Wilhelm Hennes once put it, is kind of a radicalized form of intersubjectivity. 
So when Weber is talking about what it means to have an objective analysis, then what Weber actually means is something like, let us have a culturally grounded analysis that takes our perspective and turns it into an ideal typical concept that can be used to interrogate what's actually going on out there in the world. So in this editorial statement, perhaps the most shocking thing that he says concerns the economic relations of the ancient world. He says, you know, I'm going to paraphrase here because Weber would never say, you know, it's far too informal. Um, but what he says is, it's not the case that there, that there wasn't an economy in ancient Babylon. Of course there was. It's just that until recently, we didn't really care about there being an economy in ancient Babylon because what we were mostly concerned about was its religion. And so that's what we used to analyze. Our values changed, so we developed different kinds of ideal types, and those ideal types called attention to different features of the object that we were analyzing. So now, of course, we do all these analyses of the economic relations of the ancient world. The ancient world didn't change. We changed. Our values, the values not just of us as individual researchers, but of us as a community of researchers, changed and they changed partially in re response to the broader cultural changes that we are embedded in, we take our values into the process of producing an ideal type. And then Weber says, and that's perfectly okay. That's the way it works. There are no absolutely universal concepts, Weber says. What makes something an ideal type is the acknowledgement that it is culturally grounded and that, in fact, in the future, if sets of values change, ideal types will change, and therefore the kinds of things we find interesting about the objects of study change. And that's not relativism, that's just the way knowledge is produced. Because ultimately for Weber, knowledge is about helpfully and usefully ordering empirical actuality not about penetrating through it to find some underlying real generative force, right? So this is not a realist way of going about things, and it's not a dualist way of going about things. So Weber's ideal types, if you wanted to be a little bit schematic about it, um, or maybe a lot schematic, because this is actually a lot schematic, uh, you could break down what Weber means by an ideal type into a series of logically different stages. So you could say, all right, how do you have an ideal type? Ideal types are rooted in sets of values, Right? And any actually existing cultural arena is going to have multiple kinds of value possibilities. And so a researcher has to take their stand. Right? The researcher has to figure out what kind of values they stand on. So suppose I was trying to develop an ideal type of, well, let's stick with the democracy example. It's a pretty good one. Um, suppose I was going to do that, and I wanted to take a stand on the importance of individual freedom in a democracy. And so that's kind of the value that I take. I want to have an ideal type that calls attention to and celebrates the role of individual action in democracy. Okay, great. That's my value commitment. Right? So I've articulated what my value commitment actually is. I build that into some sort of abstract or formalized model of democracy. If I think democracy is all about individuals and their freedom, let me sort of abstract from actually existing individuals and try to figure out what that would look like in kind of a pure, idealized, logical space. So a democracy composed of free individuals, how would that operate and so on. Having developed that analytical depiction of a democracy, what I then do is I take that as a tool, it's an instrument that I have in my conceptual grab bag that I take out with me as I'm trying to analyze things. I lay it down on actually existing democracies or actually existing societies. And I say, all right, where does it line up with the ideal type? And where does it not line up with the ideal type? The differences between the ideal type and the actual thing that you are observing give you facts. And so for Weber, facts are produced through a disciplined process of using your ideal type to analyze what's going on in the complex actual world. If this sounds a little familiar to you, think back to yesterday and the importance that critical realists put on laboratory experimentation. They are trying a different technique to accomplish the same thing which is the real world is messy and complicated. We need to figure out some way of cutting through it. Now, if you want to go even further back, this is what neo-positivists do with all of the statistical manipulations of real world data. 
So all of these folks are still trying to accomplish the same basic aim, which is it's too complicated to simply look at the real world. You have to do something to make it amenable to analysis. But do you do it by mathematically manipulating data to try to create something that looks like a situation that's clear enough that you can run regression analyses on it? Do you put things in a laboratory and try to isolate causal powers and take them back out into the real world and see how they're sequenced? Or do you ideal typify and use that as your way of kind of cleaning things up so that you can figure out what's happening? The main difference, though, when it comes to ideal typification is the ideal type itself, right? This is a, a grid that you lay down on top of things. People get this wrong sometimes because they look at, say, Weber's ideal type of rational legal bureaucracy, and then they look out into the world at rational legal bureaucracies and say, they don't actually function the way Weber thought they were going to, and therefore Weber's ideal type is wrong. Okay, except you're wrong in thinking that that's what Weber wanted you to do. <laughs> what Weber actually wanted you to do is to say, here is an ideal type of rational legal administration, and now I'm going to look at an actually existing bureaucracy. And gosh, that actually existing bureaucracy deviates to some extent from pure rational legal administration. Isn't that interesting? Why does this particular bureaucracy look the way that it does? You can only ask that question, Weber says, if you go into the analysis with an idealized version of rational legal bureaucracy that you can use as a baseline. So the concept that you have, the rational concept, the, rational, the idealized concept that you have of rational legal bureaucracy is precisely what allows you to appreciate what is unique and case specific about the outcome that you are observing. Now, this is the formalized version of how Weber thinks these things operate logically. This is not actually how I think Weber produced ideal types. And I think the way Weber actually produced ideal types, and if we were looking to Weber for some very specific methodological advice about how we ourselves might do this, I think the process would look something like this. Read a lot of stuff. Get immersed in an awful lot of data. In Weber's case, all of recorded human history that was available to him as a European in the late 19th, early 20th century, which was a lot of world history. And yes, Weber read, as far as we can tell, most of it. So immerse yourself in large amounts of data. Then you consult other literature because other people have also been thinking about these things. And you, as a researcher, are not an autonomous brain in a vat looking out at the world, right? This is not the Cartesian situation of knowledge. You are part of a research community. Other people in your research community have probably thought about this material too. So you kind of read what it is that they've been doing. Somewhere between your immersion in data and the consultation with other literature, you end up with a set of categories, a typology, which is what your ideal type is. How do I sort what's going on out there and helpfully order it in ways that make sense to me? After I've got that kind, of, that kind of categorization, that kind of typology, what I then do with it is I take those typology, typological categories, those ideal types, and I bring them back into the cases. And I say, all right, how then do I explain this case as somehow arising from the intersection of these different kinds of categories? So that becomes sort of what you do. You notice what's not up here is all the stuff about values and value orientations. I wonder where those are. Oh, wait, there they are. Um, the idea is that once you've done this, you then take a step back and look at it and go, huh, I guess I had value commitments all along. The production of an ideal type is a technique for surfacing your own tacit value commitments. You may not know at the outset of your investigation what your cultural value commitments are. But by the time you get to the end of one of these analyses, it's going to be perfectly clear. If not to you, then certainly to other people who look at it. So hypothetically, if you're an international relations scholar and you create an ideal type that you call the international system, and it's about anarchy and hierarchy, and you put this together and you go and analyze things, and I don't know, then let's suppose your name is Ken Waltz, and you go ahead and you put together an account of what the international system looks like, and then you go and you analyze this, and then other people go and read this and say, gosh, this guy has a real preference for order over change, doesn't he? Waltz doesn't ever say that in the book. But if you read Waltz's 79 book, Theory of International Politics, it's very clear that he's taking a set of value positions when it comes to this question of order versus order and stability versus change and progress. And that is a commitment that is broadly shared by folks in international relations who refer to themselves as political realists. 
And if you read any of their work, and Weber suggests you have to read all of this work in ideal typical terms, then you would say, oh, all right, what are they doing? They're all basically articulating a certain kind of cultural value and then building it up into a set of ideal types. Now, you might think that this means that the kind of knowledge that is produced by ideal typical analysis is somehow only valid for people who share those sets of values. And I would argue that that's actually not true. Because for Weber, the idea of social science is that you can have a disciplined use of ideal types that produces results that even if someone who reads your work doesn't agree with the values built into your ideal type, they will be able to understand and appreciate the results that you come up with. Now, and Weber says this, his main target, or one of his main targets at the time, are a whole bunch of Marxists who are floating around saying, well, we have a way of analyzing society that's not an ideal type because we've actually grasped the real essence of advanced capitalist society and it has to do with classes and class struggle and the revolution that's supposed to be coming any day now and we really need to get on that. So that's what we need to be working on. And Weber says, yeah, you know, that's a really nice ideal type. That's really good. I mean, it generates some useful insights. You don't have to be a Marxist to appreciate those insights, and you can kind of use that, and it's great. The Marxist's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just said it was one ideal type. That means there could be others. Weber says, yeah, of course there could be others. Different research communities would analyze this in different ways. If you are a doctrinaire Marxist, that offends you because your analytic is not just one among others. You somehow actually have reached the truth of society. And Weber's like, no, you haven't. You just, you have it. That's not, that's not how this works. Because what you do with ideal typical analysis is you take the ideal type and you imagine counterfactual situations that might have occurred in the case that you're analyzing. And you say, oh, it didn't happen. I wonder why. Why did it not go in that direction? So treating, an ide treating it sort of Marxist analytics as, an, as ideal types, you would say, all right, there should have been a revolution. There wasn't a revolution. I wonder what held the revolution back. And then if you're a Marxist, you go on to say, and therefore we need to make the revolution happen by changing these things. If you're Weber, you don't do that. You say, well, no, the ideal type showed me interesting things about the society, and that's enough. Counterfactuals in an ideal typical analysis are a particular imagined trajectory that never actually occurred, but it allows you to assess the importance of the specific factors in the case that pushed you in one direction rather than the other. The point of this kind of counterfactual analysis is that it helps the community decide what kinds of things are causal in a case and what kinds of things are not causal in a case. If I can imagine a perfectly plausible counterfactual trajectory in which I changed a few factors imaginatively, and then if the community of researchers agrees, yeah, yeah, you know, the changing those things wouldn't have made much of a difference. Well, now we as a community don't think that that actually caused anything. There we go. That for Weber is exactly how these kinds of deliberative processes work. The ideal type process makes that less haphazard and more disciplined, more on the same page because we have to use similar kinds of words and procedures to be able to come up with this. And when you're looking at individual cases, because ideal types are not descriptions of cases, Ideal types are not going to ever exhaust a particular case, and indeed most cases are going to be blends of particular ideal types. So Weber's three famous ideal types of authority, you know, this is rational legal authority, charismatic authority, and traditional authority, these are not descriptions of discrete developmental stages in human history. These are different ideal types that you can see in different combinations in various actually existing societies and various actually existing organizations. So when Weber talks about the bureaucracy of the Roman Catholic Church, he explains the existence of the bureaucracy of the Roman Catholic Church and the strange things the bureaucracy of the Roman Catholic Church does as arising from a tension between rational legal authority on the one hand and charismatic authority on the other. Charismatic authority is, I am the prophet, I tell you what to do because I have charisma. Rational legal authority is, there are procedures, we follow the procedures, and therefore we have the right thing. The problem is, charismatic prophets have this unfortunate tendency to die, and once they've done so, uh -oh, what happens to the charisma? Well, you can't bottle it up and sort of hand it to the next person, not really. So you have to come up with some sort of procedure for how you would transfer charisma. But that, and it's got to be somewhat rational legal because the authority now is not deriving from the charisma of this particular person. It's deriving from the process. But you also can't be too rational legal because if it's too rational legal, then it's not charismatic anymore, right? Now it's just, we just chose a new CEO. 
and that's not like a miraculous event. So what do you do? When the pope dies, you have a very weird thing of the election of a new pope that no one is allowed to campaign for, no one is allowed to run for, you know? Imagine taking out ads, right? John III for Pope. Uh, like, they don't do that, right? The votes are done in secret. We never know what the, what the tallies are. There's the whole thing with burning smoke at the Vatican to tell you, like, whether you have a new Pope or whatever. There's a whole formula in Latin you've got to say, you know, habas papum or whatever it is. So all of those sort of things, Labor would suggest, are arising. They're, they're agent-based solutions that arise from the tension between the needs of having charismatic authority on the one hand and rational legal authority on the other. The ideal types allow us to zero in on this and say, huh, that's the configuration that gives us the strange peculiarity of how the Catholic Church elects a new charismatic leader. Since, in strictly logical terms, electing a new charismatic leader makes no sense. But we do it. And a lot of our elections, if you push this logic just a little bit, a lot of our supposedly rational, legal, democratic elections also have these charismatic elements to them. We call it a mandate. Okay, what's that? Well, we won a rational legal election, but you also had a charismatic mandate that allows you to do various things. The tension between there allows you to make sense out of a lot of things going on in contemporary politics. There's almost always more than one ideal type, and a lot of social life, if you do this kind of analysis, is precisely about how located, situated agents mediate the tension between these different kinds of ideal types. So the world, through these kinds of lenses, becomes visible as a set of configurations of different tendencies that go off in different kinds of directions, similar in some ways to how a critical realist would talk about the sequencing of causal powers. The difference is, you notice what's missing here, laboratories. There's no need to do an independent laboratory vetting of an ideal type because the value of an ideal type is demonstrated in explanatory practice exclusively. That's what an ideal type is for. So who judges that the ideal type instrument is a particularly good one? Who actually decides that this is a useful conceptual device? Well, clearly, you don't decide it by seeing whether it actually is accurate because if you try to test an ideal type against an actually existing thing, then it's always falsified. Every ideal type is falsified in practice. So it's clearly not a falsifiable hypothesis. So that's not a way to do it. So instead, Weber argues, the way you tell an ideal type is good is if the community, the community of researchers, finds it useful. So does the ideal type helpfully order empirical actuality? These things stem from research practices which are themselves embedded in a cultural context, and all of the people involved in doing this research are trying to make sense out of these things. And so if everybody's earnestly attempting to make sense out of these things, what emerges as a, as a scientific consensus is what someone like John Dewey would have called warranted assertability, claims that have evidence behind them which is judged to be appropriate by the scientific community. And you may be sort of scratching your head going, wait a minute, there's got to be more to it than that. Scientific consensus? Doesn't that mean people could just kind of make stuff up? No, it doesn't mean they can make stuff up. What it does mean is it means that the community itself, the community of practice, the community of scientific practitioners, have sets of, remember Wittgenstein, tacit standards that they utilize to make their way in the world and make knowledge of the world. And so they're using those standards. And it's not just people like Wittgenstein. So you don't have to speak German, actually, to be somebody who comes up with this sort of idea. Um, there was a uh, French-speaking philosopher of science by the name of Pierre Duhem who argued that, in fact, this is precisely the way actual scientific communities do things. And the advantage of uh, Duhem's work over, in this particular point, over either Weber's work or Wittgenstein's work is that Duhem actually did empirical studies of scientific communities. So he's kind of the forerunner of like Bruno Latour's laboratory life. Like, let's actually look and see what people are doing. And if you look and see what actual practicing natural scientists do, they weigh and sift evidence and they figure things out and they argue about whether procedures are good ones and so on and so forth. And then they arrive at kind of a rough consensus. That's it. That's how science works. So from this kind of instrumental or pragmatic way of thinking, that's what makes a good scientific statement. Right? that the community of scientific practitioners judge it to be useful and that it coherently formalizes whatever sort of value commitments it is supposed to have. You can criticize an ideal type 
for not being particularly useful. You can criticize an ideal type for saying, I'm going to celebrate agency, but actually formalizing not agency, so not actually logically running my values together the way that they're supposed to. What you can't do if you're Weber is say, ah, I don't like your value commitments, and therefore I'm going to critique your ideal type. That would not be a valid mode of social scientific or scientific criticism because that would get us into Weber's ultimate nightmare scenario in which you simply have a clash of value orientations. And a clash of value orientations, Weber says, is going to lead us into a clash of gods, basically. Because now you're going to have my ultimate values and your ultimate values going to war with each other, and we're just going to be screaming at each other and not actually resolve anything. So why, you might ask, does Weber think that if we have start talking directly about our different value commitments and try to compare those, we're going to get into these sorts of irrational clashes? Because Weber's a neo-Kantian, and Weber thinks the only way you can resolve these sorts of things is if you had a transcendent rational framework for debating values. And remember, Kant failed to provide such a framework, even though he tried. And everybody after Kant is still trying to debate how you would come up with that kind of framework. So the thing Weber inherits, as most of the other neo-Kantians do, is we don't have that framework, and we're not going to. So we need to find some other way of living with ourselves and living with each other. The logical positivists said, well, we can still create that framework if we just talk about scientific statements. And the realists said, well, we can still create this kind of framework if we know what real causal powers are versus not real causal powers, and we can sort of dispel illusions. And Weber and the Weberian ideal typical solution to this says, no, what we do is we avoid direct value confrontation, and we focus instead on the explanatory value of how different ideal types derive from values tell us things about the world. That's what we end up focusing on. So social science is a sort of steered conversation about these things. Now, one thing that is constant throughout this sort of discussion so far of Weber, and when I've been talking here about this kind of, of monistic commitment, is the fact that this kind of analysis shares something very important in common with logical positivism. Part of the reason why Wittgenstein's an interesting bridge between the two of them, because he's really important to logical positivism, but he's really important to this way of thinking as well. Even though we have no direct evidence that Weber actually ever read Wittgenstein, but we do have one super intriguing note in a diary where Wittgenstein talks about having read a book in German about Protestant theology and America and the economy. And I remember reading that and looking at the notebooks and going, uh-huh, he's talking about the Protestant ethic. Wittgenstein read Weber. That's cool. Um, I think. It doesn't actually say Weber, but I'm going to go with it and say that's, that's actually a connection. Um, but so all of this work that we've been sort of looking at so far in terms of the way Weber talks about these things is still arguing right, that knowledge is, just like for the, for the positivists, logical positivists, confined to the sphere of experience. There's no deep causal power induction going on or abduction going on in Weber. The ideal type is not an object of knowledge. The ideal type, an ideal type, is a tool that you use to generate knowledge. Knowledge is not of an ideal type. Knowledge is of an object. The ideal type is the, the apparatus that you use to grasp what's important about the object. So you can't use an ideal type as an object of knowledge, and therefore, because an ideal type doesn't provide a solid basis on which to say, well, my knowledge is securely grounded on an ideal type, I can't use my ideal type to normatively judge anything. Which leads to the idea, strongly expressed throughout a lot of Weber's writings, that social science tells you how things fit together and what the likely consequences of particular actions are, full stop. And that's where politics takes over. Because then what the social scientist is supposed to do is tell the politician, you want to do that, great, here's the likely consequences, have fun, you're the politician, you make the decision, that's not our job. Our job is not to tell you what to do, our job is to tell you what the likely consequences of your declared value commitments actually are. They were called this value clarification, so that's kind of what social science is supposed to be about. There are a number of folks thinking through these issues were kind of dissatisfied with that as a partial understanding of sort of what social science is supposed to be about. Scientific knowing in a Weberian or monistic phenomenalist, to put some jargon terms on it, way of thinking about knowledge production, scientific knowledge, scientific knowing is a form of world making according to very strict 
kinds of, of procedures that are really about individual scientists debating with one another and comparing and weighing evidence and so on. So the question becomes, what if you wanted to do more than that? What if you still kept the idea that, that the mind and the world are connected to one another in the way that monists argue, but what you uh, decided was a better thing that to do with that connection is not simply to note how the world is and explain it, but try to actively produce knowledge that was going to transform it. And then, if you did that, you would be arguing. Yeah, okay, so I'm 30 minutes late, but still. You would be suggesting at that point that there's another way of cashing out a set of monistic commitments that takes advantage more of the way that knowledge, if you are a monistic sort of entity plugged into the world at this deep fundamental level, that that knowledge that you produce has to start with a kind of reflexive criticism of where it is that you yourself are positioned. The way you move beyond instrumentality, according to this fourth category of philosophers of knowledge, is to say that we're not just taking an ideal type that expresses a set of values. So when we produce these conceptual instruments, we're not just looking for something that's pragmatically useful. Instead, what we're doing is we're taking these ideal types, these, these concepts, these sets of values, they themselves, by, by doing this process of surfacing what those value commitments are, what we make possible is the analysis of how we came to hold the values that we hold. So yes, as, uh, since this is a, a monistic way of doing things, they would argue that our knowledge is grounded in our cultural commitments, but those commitments are not arbitrary. There are reasons behind them, not rational reasons that make them somehow transcendentally true, but cultural and situated reasons, historical reasons, why we hold the values that we hold. So they would say, yes, Wittgenstein was absolutely right. Language game tells you sort of what's going on when people are comparing information and so on and so forth, but doesn't explain to you why we should prefer one language game over another and doesn't give you the resources to criticize an existing language game and say, that's not the one we should be playing. We should be playing a different one. So form of life says, yes, there are social foundations to our knowledge, but doesn't really unpack what those social foundations actually are. So the critics of this kind of, of Weberian monistic approach would say, you've started down the right road, but you haven't gone far enough yet. And in order to go far enough, what you would need to do, the critics would say, and do say, is that we need to realize that because knowledge is situated, every knowledge claim is a view from somewhere in the social order. And because it is a view from somewhere, we need to take that somewhere into account when we evaluate the goodness or badness of the knowledge that is actually produced. It's not just about utility, it's not just about use value. It's also about the position and the view of social order that is reproduced in the scientific apparatus. So the vocabulary and syntax, the particular kinds of scientific research communities use, are ways of summing up the perspective that they have. And that perspective is a certain kind of codified experience. People come to understand things as a result of the life histories that they have, as a result of the particular locations in the social order that they occupy. And therefore, if we wanted to push this a little bit further, a group of researchers that was exclusively composed of privileged males of a dominant ethnic group would probably not come to the same sets of conclusions as people who were located differently in the social order and had different sets of experiences that they would build into the different kinds of conceptual instruments that they would forge for making sense of the world. And therefore, the argument is, you have to take that kind of perspectival location into account. You have to have a reflexive criticism of the origin of where your perspective comes from in order to actually make sense of the kind of knowledge claims that people are articulating. There is, therefore, according to the critics, absolutely no such thing as a neutral language, and even Weber's scare quotes around objectivity don't go far enough, because it's still objectivity. Even if it's like objectivity with academic scare quotes, it's still kind of objectivity. But no, 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 we want to go further than that. Say, no, 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 this whole project of trying to produce a neutral point of view, like we should not ever be doing that. Instead, what we need to do here is we need to take seriously that not only is there a philosophy of knowledge, or an epistemological register for talking about knowledge, but a sociological register. 
And if we really want to examine how knowledge works, we have to think not just about its epistemic status, but about its sociological location and position. So the sociology of science, according to reflexive analysts, is an integral part of the practice of science. We need to have more of a sociological consciousness about how these kinds of claims are generated and how the claims that are generated reflect particular points of view on the broader social order. Not just the practices that we use within a particular research community, but the practices of transaction between the research community and the broader environment where that research is located, how that research is funded and legitimated. Those are all incredibly important things when thinking about how knowledge is actually generated. Now, when reflexive and critical, these words kind of run together, theorists that are interested in sort of doing this, what they will often say is that when we all have a set of shared assumptions in a research community, there is what you might call, what people have called, the objectivity effect. We all think it's the case, and so therefore, we of course think it's objective. So the aforementioned group of male dominant ethnic group researchers share a certain set of assumptions by virtue of their social position, which they then think, quite naturally, are objective. And they're just true, because we all agree, don't we? Yes, we all agree, great. Anybody who's not part of that group is gonna say, wait a minute, hold on, you're missing something here. The thing you think is objective, actually not objective, it's really kind of partial. It's actually really just your experience, and really there's other experiences that like, maybe would help us understand this a little bit better, so perhaps we should be part of that room. And the response of said male dominant ethnic group would be, that's nice, could we have some coffee, right? So it's, there, there's, a kind of, there's a set of discriminatory practices that hold these things in place and produce this objectivity effect. Well, no, we all think it's true, so there's no reason for us to try to question this. So what this does, the similarity of origin can produce distortions in how scientific knowledge is articulated because we have false universals. We have ways of knowing that appear to be universally valid but are actually quite contextually specific. And this isn't just about you know, privileged, ethnically privileged males in a particular context. This also is the case, as Sandra Harding pointed out, when you think about the kinds of natural scientific findings that were produced by European natural scientists, largely as a result of the fact that they had ships that could go all around the world because colonialism and take various natural products because colonialism and bring them back to these various museums and zoological parks and things in England because colonialism colonialism and were able to use those things to say now we have universal ways of knowing about how botany works on planet Earth. Of course you do have universal ways because you're standing on top of it and you're using it in particular ways. And of course in so doing you're, you're getting rid of a lot of the local knowledge that existed in these sort of very specific places. So there's a way in which objectivity, the objectivity of the natural sciences is inextricable from the set of colonial relations that were used to produce it in the first place. So similarities of experiences and, and underlying social uh, arrangements produce certain kinds of knowledges. And we often aren't aware of this because we are socialized into the context that we actually inhabit. So we sort of don't know what we don't know. And there's no way that it's very hard for us to tell like what's going on or what has gone into sort of the backdrop of our own sets of experiences. Because to steal another page from John Dewey for a second, we have developed certain kinds of habits, habits of dealing with the world, habits of knowing in the world, and those habits serve us well, and so we have no reason to question them. And so unless we are forced to question them, unless we are reflexively forced to question our assumptions, we simply go on with the sets of assumptions that we have. So the entire point of a critical approach to thinking about scientific knowledge is how do you surface and make people aware of the background tacit assumptions that make what they think is simply warranted assertability into something a little bit more partialized. Because what's actually going on is we're doing things that we think are appropriate in context. And we really, if we're trying to be at all broad about this, we should be broader than just the things we find acceptable. Different kinds of assumptions appear to be irrelevant. 
So when feminist critics first started raising points about politics, the existing political science and international relations <coughs> establishment said, why would gender make a damn bit of difference? Who cares about gender? Because we have all these models that show us all these economic factors, and they all go into this, and we can predict the following things about elections. That's great. That we don't need this. This is an irrelevant consideration. And feminists said, well, no, actually, it's quite relevant because a whole lot of stuff you're missing by not looking at this. Um, and the existing sort of dominant establishment said, no, not really. No, this is, these models work well enough. That's perfectly fine. So the challenge then for anybody bringing in different assumptions is to show how those different assumptions actually improve explanation. But of course, if the terms of what constitutes an explanation have already been set by a particular dominant group, anybody else bringing in those other assumptions is still liable to be swept off as like, no, that's really not important. I explain well enough. I don't know why I need to deal with your assumptions. So those are the kinds of clashes that critical theorists would argue actually are sort of going on in the background of the way that scientific knowledge is actually produced. That dismissal of different kinds of assumptions means that you end up with dominant positions in knowledge that reflect a privileged position in the social order without being aware that they are reflecting a privileged position in the social order. And because they don't take that seriously, then they oh, we're not reproducing the social order, we're just studying the way things actually are. Well, of course you are, and it helps that by not challenging the existing social order, the existing social order allows you to generate these kinds of knowledge claims, which then reinforce the social order. Gosh, pretty convenient, isn't it? You, senior professor, tenured at very important university. Obviously, you can do that because you're not an institutionalized critic, right? Because if you had been, then you probably wouldn't have gotten said job at super prestigious institution. So what critical theorists argue is that what we need is not hegemonic knowledge, because we're going to produce, that gets produced all the time anyway. What we need is something else. What we need is what they would refer to as critical knowledge which is to say counter-hegemonic ways of thinking about knowledge that position our eyes analytically not from the top of the heap, not from the center of the system, but from the margins, from the bottom, from the outside, that that's where we should be looking at social order from. Now, there are a number of sort of classic figures who did this. Um, there was this guy. You know, he had a few things to say about workers and how the experience of the workers and the alienation of the workers from the product of their labor might, you know, have some impact on how we understand the social order. Um, and so clearly we have this entire kind of Marxist tradition of how we do this. Reading Marxism not as realism, but reading it as critical knowledge is to say not that Marx and his followers have discovered some real existing property of the world, but that they have discovered that if you look at the world from the perspective of the laborer, you get to see very different things about how the world is put together and understand it in in very different ways. So if you can identify this guy, I mean, I'll give, you, I'll give you a bunch of points if you can identify this next guy. Anybody know who that is? Anybody who hasn't seen this lecture before know who this is? Close. First name is Carl. Carl Mannheim. Carl Mannheim. Sociologist of knowledge, sometimes student of Weber. Um, was very interested in thinking about the positionality of the intellectual as being somewhat marginal to society. And you say, how can intellectuals possibly be marginal to society? Well, he's doing this as a quasi-Marxist. And so if really society is about labor, intellectuals are like super unproductive labor. Because what exactly do we generate, right? So he says, OK, well, what's that mean? It means that intellectuals can sort of stand back from the production process. And what they're then able to do is to help thematize different kinds of emergent unities in the social order so that then intellectuals are perhaps a marginal position from which to analyze things. Um, and there's another guy whose picture I didn't put up here, um, but you'd probably be able to recognize him because like Gramsci is a little bit more visually recognizable than Monheim. But if I put Gramsci up here, then we would also say, OK, there's another way of thinking about the positionality of intellectuals, which is that they're unintentionally reproducing the social order by generating hegemonic projects. And so maybe what we need is counter-hegemonic intellectuals. Similar kind of position, similar notion that the position of the intellectual is a useful place from which to view society. All of that depends on the idea that society is really about labor and production, so therefore intellectuals are marginal to it, right? So there's that. Um, there's other sorts of approaches, other people who sort of have done this, including someone that you may not recognize, and this is not actually doing, so I'm going to have to go over here and push that so we get... This is Sandra Harding. 
know if you're familiar with Sander Harding, absolutely brilliant philosopher of science, um, who wrote a, a wonderful book a couple of years ago on objectivity. And the book on objectivity has a lot of exploration of the way in which the notions of universality and objectivity are wrapped up with colonial practices. Um, so absolutely fantastic book on precisely this point. But Harding's point consistently throughout her career has been that if we promise that scientific practices are supposed to be fairly evaluating different kinds of perspectives, it's absolutely necessary to have researchers with very diverse sets of assumptions. And if you don't have very diverse sets of assumptions, which come from very diverse sets of experience and very diverse sets of backgrounds, then you are likely to get something that looks objective when it is not. And so then the notion of objectivity becomes not a goal to be achieved, but a, a, a lever to use to pry open things and say, you claim to be objective. Let me show you how you're not. Let me show you how you're actually perspectival. It's a perpetual critical process. You never reach some promised land called objective social science. But the idea of objectivity is useful to help break up some of these kinds of epistemic coalitions, as it were. Anybody recognize this guy? W.E.B. Du Bois, the most brilliant sociologist ever produced in the United States. Someone who, except for the nasty, nasty racist practices of American academia, would be more widely celebrated as one of the founders of sociology, um, but was marginalized in all kinds of ways uh, because of the color of his skin. Um, but Du Bois argued in The Souls of Black Folk in 1903 a book which, when Weber read it, said, this is the most amazing thing I've ever read about race. It changes my ideas. I want to get it translated into German. He tried. Then this little war intervened, and so it was a bit of a problem to get things translated. Um, but he tried for a long time to sort of get this, get this translated and published. And when he went to the expo in the United States, the scientific expo in the United States, he said, there's only one American academic that I want to meet. It's Du Bois. So he went and had breakfast with Du Bois in a southern state a white guy having breakfast with a black guy. People were like, oh, no, he's a foreigner. He didn't know what he was doing. Weber knew exactly what he was doing, <laughs> right? He's saying, no, 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 here, this is what we really should be taking seriously. Du Bois argued that the positionality of the marginalized ethnic group was actually a really useful way to look at society because if you were a black person living in the United States, you operated with what he called a double consciousness. You knew your own experience but you also knew the dominant approaches that marginalized your experience because you had to learn how to move in that world. So you actually have an epistemic privilege, as it were. You understand society better by being on the receiving end of its stick than you do from standing up at the top. Double consciousness becomes a place, epistemically, from which we can understand society better. So the common thread across all of these critical folks is place your eyes, place your, your, your analytical sensibilities not in the middle. Place your analytical sensibilities on the edge, on the margins, and then you will understand what's going on in social life much better. And very briefly, how does this actually work? The way this works is you have to start out by trying to locate yourself and where you are and what kinds of assumptions you have, not just personal subjective assumptions, but where you are located, what your position as a researcher in society is. This is not irrelevant introductory information that is sort of nice and biographical to set up your quote-unquote real analysis. No, this is part and parcel of actually how your knowledge is produced. And you have a, a responsibility as a researcher to identify to the extent that you can that sort of perspective so that other people can properly appreciate what it is that you are doing. This is not an optional add-on, contrary to what certain editors will tell people who write these kinds of work. They'll say, that autobiographical nonsense in the beginning, we didn't need that, so just chop that chapter off. And then you can get to the real scientific stuff after that. No, it's not the way it works. This is not optional. This is actually part and parcel of what you are doing when you are engaged in this kind of reflexive social science. And the reason why it's not optional is because in order to say, I am in a particular location and that location influences what I see, I have to find traces of where my location is actually sort of leaving its mark on my experience. 
So it's not as if I'm simply going to tell you like demographic facts about myself. It's like, okay, so where am I and how does where I am affect, what can I see traces of this? Feminists call this consciousness raising. So we think about the ways in which the experience of patriarchy mark particular kinds of knowledge. And there are procedures, pedagogical procedures, that feminist educators go through to try to get people to recognize these things. Right? Finding those traces of the structure in our everyday activities makes our knowledge better because now our knowledge is grounded in a set of experiences that actually is located with respect to the social order as opposed to pretending that it floats above the social order and outside of it. Adopting that kind of marginal perspective is therefore not just key politically, but key epistemologically. Like it's better to look there because you understand different and more comprehensively what's going on in a social order by thinking about it from its edges. Right? Thinking from the center is just going to reproduce the center. Thinking from the margins might actually help you figure out how it operates. As Cynthia Enloe once put it, if you want to understand how power operates in a society, look at those on whom and over whom it is exercised. Don't look at the power wielders so much. Look at the people who are taking the brunt of it. That experience is where you actually want to locate yourself. So having adopted that kind of position, you then can produce knowledge that not only explains what's going on in society, but can also critique it. Because by surfacing those kinds of assumptions, saying, hey, you all think this is the way society works, but if we sort of take this perspective, we see that a lot of other things are going on. That in itself is a criticism of what actually exists. This then provokes a response, kind of a dialectical response. I'm giving you an account of society from the perspective of the margin. We expect the center to hit back because the center always hits back, right? After Star Wars always comes the Empire Strikes Back. So, you know, the bad guys are always going to come back and sort of attack us with big ships. So, you know, this is what's going to occur. You're going to get that sort of a response. That response is exactly what you want if you are a critical social scientist. You want to provoke that response. Because the response itself and the dialogue that is provoked in that might help to surface those assumptions a little bit better. Remember, this is not a realist account. It's not like you have the correct answer to the dispositional causal powers of things. You want to provoke more awareness of these shared assumptions. And the best way to provoke awareness of those shared assumptions is precisely to challenge them in the very core of your own knowledge claims. So therefore, following up, paying attention to what your knowledge claims do when they are released in society, is a necessary follow-on to this kind of critical social science. And what that means in vocational terms is that it is very often the case that people who do critical social science, who occupy this fourth kind of tradition, are less concerned about confining what they're doing to the world of academic practice and are more interested in having their work reach out beyond academic practice to the world of broader kinds of social practices, whether that's in the form of organizing, activism, uh, participatory action research, various ways that people actually engage with these broader communities outside. That is something that fits very, very naturally with this kind of critical social scientific approach, not so easily with many of the others. And now that we've gotten to this point, you're probably thinking, oh, so, okay, PTJ, what are we supposed to do about all of this stuff? Well, I'm going to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you right now because you all have classes to get to, and I've got to go teach one myself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up about 20 minutes worth of conclusion sometime this afternoon and load it up to the Moodle. And I hope you've enjoyed what I have been able to present, and I hope you will enjoy the punchline when I get to deliver it.